Hey guys, Kyle here. I uh, hope everybody had a wonderful Christmas. Thank you for tuning in to our latest episode covering the movie Collateral. One uh, quick thing before we start, we had a microphone issue this week, which is uh, why I sound kind of like I'm inside a 55-gallon drum. Uh, Kari, as usual, sounds great though, so uh, sorry about that. I know it's not ideal, but, you know, stuff happens. So uh, without further ado, please... Enjoy our Collateral episode. Imagine, if you will, a movie about a, uh, a driver, a professional driver, who gets in over his head with crime, and it stars Jamie Foxx. So... I've already seen Baby Driver, so... Aha! I'm glad you said that, because this movie, I feel like, makes a perfect... Uh, double feature with Baby Driver. This is Michael Mann's Collateral. Oh. It co-stars Jamie Foxx, who plays a taxi cab driver in L.A., and Tom Cruise in what I personally think might be his best role ever. Wow. As a criminal who is a professional hitman, and he hires Jamie Foxx to drive him around basically on a night of errands. And Jamie Foxx figures out what's going on, and Tom Cruise says, well, tough shit, because you're still driving me around all night. Mm -hmm. And it is criminally underappreciated. So yeah, <laughs> Collateral, Jamie Foxx, and Tom Cruise, highly recommend, and that is my pick for next week. Hello, welcome to K Have You Seen? I'm Kyle. And I'm Kari. And this week we are going to be talking about... Uh, Movie that I would kind of consider almost a forgotten modern classic, uh, Collateral, Michael Mann's 2004 movie starring Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx um, and Jay Pinkett Smith. In a, and Mark Ruffalo. And Mark Ruffalo. Javier Bardem is Javier in Bardem there. Javier Bardem is in there. Jason Statham is in the very first scene. Oh, that's scene. right. Forget about um, And this is a film that I had not actually seen probably since it came out 12 years ago now. Uh, 12, 13 years ago? 13 years ago. And I don't know why I never revisited it. But uh, I guess most people haven't really revisited it because it's not one that you ever really hear anybody talking about, which is odd. Yeah. But before I talk about why I think that's odd, I kind of wanted to get your impressions on it. Now, have you ever even heard of this movie before? Um, no, not. This really didn't ring any bells for me. As soon as I started saying, like I said to a couple of people that I was watching it and almost everyone owns the DVD, apparently. Okay. Yeah. So... Apparently it's out there, but... We were just talking to my roommate a minute ago, and he says he owns the DVD, but has never actually watched the movie, so it might be one of those things that was just, like, on sale at Walmart that Christmas, and so, like, Maybe. everybody bought it. I don't know. It's out there, though, but I, yeah, I had no no engagement with this movie at all, so this was totally cold for me. Okay, and, and now, obviously, you were familiar with, like, the actors that we just named. I mean, it's got some pretty big names attached to it, which is part of the reason why I'm surprised that it's largely forgotten. But now, how familiar are you with Michael Mann? Um, not super familiar. I looked him up afterwards and had heard of several of his movies, but action just tends to not be my genre, so I'm yeah. not a buff on, you know, on right. the directors. So, sure. so I, I find it interesting, for one thing, that this, uh, this movie in particular was very, I mean, it is very stylish. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's kind of stylish crime thriller drama. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a weird, like, genre hybrid. And one of the things I find so fascinating about it is that, you know, it, the plot deals with Jamie Foxx being a cab driver in Los Angeles, and he ends up picking up uh, Tom Cruise, who plays a, uh, an assassin, a hitman, mm -hmm. and 
Jamie Foxx doesn't know that at first, and so he ends up finding out abruptly, which throws off Tom Cruise's plan. Very abruptly. Right, which throws off Tom Cruise's plan of keeping him in the dark. And so he ends up becoming essentially kidnapped by Tom Cruise to drive him around Los Angeles over one night to execute these different contracts he's got on these five different people. So it's kind of an interesting concept. And stylistically, I, find, I thought it was so interesting because this is kind of a tired... Uh, cliched concept of like the getaway driver for mm. a criminal or for criminals or whatever. We've seen it imitated a thousand times before. This is not the first, it was not the last. But what I find so interesting about this one in particular is that Michael Mann might be the biggest stylistic influence on Nicholas Winding Refn, who directed Drive, which I know that you mm-hmm. have not seen, but mm-hmm. it was a big, you know, garnered a lot of attention as being just like a super stylish movie and it imitates a lot of Michael Mann's style from the 80s. You could not pick two movies about getaway drivers that are more different than Drive and Collateral. Like, mm-hmm. this is such a unique take on the getaway driver formula. And I kind of want to get your thoughts on on that in particular. Like, even though action's not really your bag, you are familiar with this as kind of like a familiar trope, right? Sure. And I just saw Baby Driver not long ago, which is another sure. kind of retake. So I feel like I'm more recently familiar with the reimaginings of this genre than the actual genre itself, because it is, you know, it's... 10 or 20 kind of years tired now but this it was interesting kind of having that unwitting driver mm-hmm. i think the ta- seeing the taxi side of it was one of the more interesting parts of just like what's it like to be a cab driver in la and mm-hmm. the film was definitely really interested in that but yeah it was it was interesting i think they did some really interesting things with both of their characters especially at the time I, jamie fox was he had already done ray he yes. had done what else did he... He had, like, the Jamie Foxx show and stuff, but he sure. wasn't really the star we know. Oh, he's also in Baby Driver. Yeah, Connection. Yeah, yeah exactly. But that's more of the Jamie Foxx that I feel like we have right now, where he's kind of this badass, and he's always... Yeah. He's played kind of the hardened criminal a lot, but in general, just kind of the cool, collected, he's, harder one. And in this one, that's not him at all. So no, it was interesting seeing that. For sure, this was Jamie Foxx playing every man mm-hmm. in a way that I do not recall ever seeing him playing every man before. He's always playing either, like, some kind of... You know, he, in Ray, he was obviously great because mm-hmm. uh, he won the Oscar for Ray. And he uh, his performance was flawless, I thought. And, but that was him in a biopic. And he, he, it was kind of the first time that I think a lot of people saw him do, like, dramatic chops. Right. Because he normally plays flashy characters. Mm-hmm. So, like, in Baby Driver, like you mentioned, he's extremely flashy. And he's over the top. Uh, Django Unchained, another kind of like a flashy performance, mm -hmm. you know, with a dramatic side, but mostly flashy. Right. So this in particular I thought was really interesting because this was hot off the heels of Ray, because I think Ray was 2002, this is 2004, and so he is like, ooh, you know, getting respect as like a dramatic actor and not Mm -hmm. just like as a character, like really a character actor, comedy actor, whatever. Um, So this is an interesting thing for, and I wanted to kind of get your impression. What do you think of his performance in this particular movie? Um, I thought it was interesting. I thought kind of he takes a pretty major turn towards the end, and I, I liked that, and I thought it was really good. I wanted more. Like, I kind of wanted more of the everyman. He's supposed to be pretty charming, you think, in the beginning, because the first scene is him yeah. getting the number off a lawyer chick who's in the right. back. And honestly, that was one of the biggest suspensions of disbelief for me uh-huh. in the film was like, that just doesn't tend to happen. But so I wanted I wanted to believe that a little bit more. And then at the end when he kind of like 
makes this big shift. I thought he did it well and it was believable, but I think he could have gone farther with it. Sure, yeah. Well, would it surprise you if I told you that Jamie Foxx was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in this role? For an Oscar? Yep. Wow. Yeah. I feel like that doesn't happen for action movies. That's more of why I'm surprised, but... Now, if you had to take a stab at how this movie was reviewed in general, Mm -hmm. uh, let's say the tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes, would you say this movie was voted fresh or rotten? Um... I would say fresh, but just barely. Maybe in the 60s or 70s. 86% fresh. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. The critics love this movie. How did it get forgotten is my question. Like, With these superstars attached yeah. to it, you know? It blows my mind. I really have no idea. Where was, like, Javier Bardem and stuff out and Mark Ruffalo at that time? Like, Not as big. Mark Ruffalo, I feel like, might have been a little bit better known mm-hmm. than Javier Bardem. I have no idea what he was doing. This is, I, I, didn't rec- I did not know who he was when I first saw the movie. Okay. So... No, no Country for Old Men was, like, after this? Yes, yeah, so that was okay. 2007, mm. and that was the first time I ever, like, knew who he was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this is the earliest movie that I know of that he was in. I'm sure he's been acting since at least the 90s, but, like, I I, I just don't know of any other movies that he was in right. before this. So we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I kind of, this movie uh, had kind of an interesting path to development that I wanted to get into. I wanted oh, yeah. to kind of get your take on this. The screenwriter is Stuart Beatty, who I had not never heard of before this, uh, and he doesn't have any other major writing credits that I, that I saw. Uh, he's Australian. He was 17 when he says that he had the idea of a homicidal maniac sitting in the back of a cab with the driver nonchalantly entering into conversation with him. Later, when he was enrolled at Oregon State University, he fleshed it out into his first screenplay. He called it at the time The Last Domino, which I think is kind of a cool title. Yeah. He put the script away, took it out every once in a while to like rewrite and revise. So a few years later, he's waiting tables, and he runs into Julie Richardson, who he had met at a UCLA screenwriting course, who was who had become a producer, and she was looking specifically for thriller scripts. Hmm. So he sees this like old classmate. It's like, oh hey, how you doing? Starts a conversation, finds out she's looking for thriller scripts, and says, oh cool. Well, I just happen to be sitting on this one I've been working on for a few years. Long story short, he shows the script for the last domino to her to his friend. She takes it to her boss, Frank Darabont. He likes it. Sets up a meeting with HBO. HBO passes on it. Baby, uh, the writer, he begs his agent to set up a meeting with DreamWorks. And they bought the studio, the studio that bought the screenplay the following week after having somebody actually read it. So they bought it a week after reading it. And it was offered to act. Steve offered it to like Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese before my oh, man, wow. which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, that um, would be a totally different, different film. So anyway, yeah, kind of an interesting path to uh, to uh, fruition. And um, uh, could you imagine anybody else in these roles? That's another thing. Like I feel like the cast is kind of perfect. Yeah. Um, but could you imagine anybody else? Like who, if, if you could guess of like who maybe they might have asked. For some of these parts, somebody jumped to mind. Oh, so who they would have asked at that time, not who I would imagine in it now. Um, I mean, I could have seen Jason Statham be a different version of the Tom Cruise character since he was, yeah, like having kind of that harder edge. Um, Because he's he's played uh, the Transporter in a couple of movies, which is sort of like another getaway formula. Fair, yeah. Um, at that time, who was big in two thousand four? 
in kind of the Tom Cruise face. I don't know. Who did they ask? I'll make it a little easier on you because Tom Cruise was the first person that Michael Mann approached. He was the only person he wanted to play Vincent, although John Travolta was actually considered at one point. Oh, interesting. That could have been interesting. Probably not as good. Yeah, I don't know if that would have worked. Tom Cruise is actually pretty good in this movie. He is. I wanted more from him, too, quite honestly. I could have dug into both of those characters more. I think they spent a lot of time kind of on these other people that... Uh But anyway. No, yeah, and, and... I thought he played the character great, and it's one of the very, very few times that Tom Cruise ever played a villain in a movie. Mm-hmm. And, and a gray-haired villain, which... Yeah! Which I was confused. like, Tom Cruise looks normal in that movie. Now he just looks like, you know, I, I, mm. I don't know if, if gray was his natural color at the time or brown was. I don't know. I don't understand. I almost felt like he was trying to impersonate someone or something. The gray was such a specific choice, and I don't know if he was going natural hair and just being like, world, this is me now, or... What? Because if that was the case, he should. Yeah, like he didn't stick with it if that was what was happening. But so I want to say was, he was probably like forty at the time, forty-two. He didn't look old enough to be full gray, and there was no plot reason why he needed to be grizzled. But yeah. he wasn't even—he was like silver fox, not <laughs> even like rugged. But yeah, yeah. So okay, but uh, you'll never guess who they wanted to play Max, the cab driver. Tom Hanks. Not Tom Hanks, although that could have been super interesting. Oh, I would have liked that. Uh, I'll give you a thousand guesses and you never pick it. Mm. But take a stab. Uh, Gene Hackman. Ooh, that could have been kind of cool. But yeah, no. that interesting. I could see him in the in the Mark Ruffalo character. Gene Hackman as the Mark oh, Ruffalo character yeah. could have been really cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. Who was it? Adam Sandler. What? Oh, I totally would have seen that movie. You want to talk, you want to talk about a wild movie? This that would be a crazy version of this movie. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So, do you know how they ended up on on Jamie Foxx instead? Uh, I don't know the whole story, but basically, um, you know, Michael Mann had uh, you know obviously they had a list of like who they might want for characters. At one point, um, they wanted to ask Robert De Niro mm-hmm. to kind of go back to playing a taxi driver taxi but like the polar mm-hmm. opposite of his character from Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. Taxi Driver? Nope. Alright, well. I know. Put some uh, classics on there. I'm ready for oh, some for classics. Oh, for sure. For sure. It, it, it's coming. Yeah, they, Michael Mann at one point wanted considered Cuba Gooding Jr. for Max. Oh, I could see that. But chose to go with Jamie Foxx instead because Cuba Gooding Jr. and Tom Cruise had already worked together in Jerry Maguire. Oh, true. Um, and he didn't want to have another movie where they were just playing off each other the whole time. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. Yeah. So once the cast was settled, just a couple of quick interesting things that I thought was, was kind of cool. Uh, Michael Mann says that Vincent, Tom Cruise's character, is somebody who's able to get in and out of anywhere without being recognized or remembered. And so to prepare for the movie, he had Tom Cruise make FedEx deliveries around Los Angeles and try to not have anybody recognize him. Wow. Which... That seems pretty cool. That's like, that's pro ninja stuff, if you ask me. That seems like something you couldn't get away with now because shit like that happens all the time in like publicity stunts. Like social media is so huge that you're, no one's expecting it, but like it happens enough that people will be like, oh man, like get your cell phone out and take a video. Uh, Which cell phones, put a pin in that. Oh yeah, cell phones are kind of a big deal in this one, which I I think is very interesting. in preparation for his role, Jamie Foxx trained as a cab driver, which sure. big deal. But he also prepared for the car chase sequences by racing old cars in the desert. Michael Mann often joined him. Oh yeah, that That's seems totally necessary. Preparation. Put that in your writer. Um, I thought that was pretty funny. Like you know, it's not 
It's it's preparation. It's fine. It's for work. Um, also, uh, Michael Mann is known for being pretty meticulous. Apparently, he wrote like reams of documents containing background on both characters. Um, Cruz said that the document of Vincent had information on how he began to like jazz, for instance. Oh. So super deep biographical information. Uh, photos of hometowns, like crazy detailed Whoa. stuff. And he worked with um, Beatty, the writer, to develop that. So huh. I thought that was super interesting. That is cool, but I don't... That's the stuff that I felt like I was kind of missing in this. And so it's interesting that they had it, but I don't know how it could have come across a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. So let's kind of talk a little bit about like actually running down the, the storyline uh, a little bit. And, you know, hitting the beats of the movie. As I mentioned before, it's like it's pretty original. I mean, as far yeah. as Hollywood movies go... This is one of the more original stories that I think I've seen in, in movies in a while. Would you agree? Yeah, especially for an action movie. I think there's a lot of routes it could have taken. It kind of dives down a couple different alleys mm-hmm. and makes something totally unique out of them instead sure. of completely following one. So, yeah, I'd agree. Also, uh, the whole sequence with Max and Jada Pinkett Smith, the lawyer, mm-hmm. I feel like that could have been in a different universe, a, a just a short film on its own. It's like five minutes of like these two in a car having a mm-hmm. conversation about the best way to get wherever, talking about hopes and dreams, and like stressing out before a big case and this kind of stuff. I thought that it was a very cute kind of scene to get to know a character who, as far as we know at the time, is just going to vanish off into the ether. Right. For the rest of the movie. Yeah, that it was. I liked that moment, and it was interesting how it kind of rippled out into the next couple scenes because it was pretty self-contained but then not but right. we can get into that oh for sure we'll, we'll get into the spoilers here shortly definitely uh, stylistically again um michael mann's 80s stuff was a lot more like film noir influence like by the time he got to heat in like 1995 mm-hmm. which is probably his most famous movie a little bit more modernized, but I really feel like this is a, this particular movie, it could have been like a 1940s film noir very, very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a cab driver and a organized crime hitman, uh, and they're driving around Los Angeles. I mean, that is film noir, really. But I thought that was very interesting that this is such a, it seems like such a kind of an obvious concept that just never materialized before 2004. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I thought that was kind of cool. I definitely thought that this could have functioned as like a period piece, even if they wanted to go that route. Yeah. And I think it, it was interesting. They almost made it a period piece of that time, I kind of felt like. Like, of 2004. In a way, it does seem dated. And I do want to talk It does about now, that. but I do think it was very rooted in its time anyway. Yes. Like, yes. it could have been a period piece, but it was... Kind of the opposite now. It's like almost... Well, not the opposite, but it's like not timeless at all it's so rooted in the moment that it was made right instead of being kind of outside of time which i feel like is you know what is the opposite of a period piece it's very much rooted in the time it happened to be made yeah i did really enjoy the way that you know especially in the in the opening um in the cab stand before we actually meet max the way they use close-ups as establishing shots was kind of interesting to me where it's like you just saw these close-ups of like the sign on the top of the cab and and uh, the interior and the meter and stuff like that and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. I thought that was a really interesting way to like establish place mm-hmm. um, because the location for roughly a third to half of the movie is the interior of Max's cab. Right. And so to like establish that by showing a bunch of close-ups, I thought that was kind of an interesting choice. Yeah, I like the sound design a lot for the mm-hmm. intro too. I think they did a lot to kind of intro the tone and where you are with. 
just that little yeah. natsat, if you will. Although not crazy about the soundtrack. Like the music I thought was Oh, yeah. Not great. Like that especially Mark Ruffalo's introduction scene with like the crazy like harmonica like hawking <laughs> all, all through like while he's investigating a murder scene. I thought that was Yeah, and very, they Yeah. Uh, not great. Some of the action scenes too got into that like pumping techno mm-hmm. thing that's a little bit it was too much of a like this is an action scene to your point that seems like a very early 2000s thing where they yeah. were still kind of experimenting on how to just like blast your eardrums out with with like thumping beats and stuff like that yeah although apparently one of the one of the tracks that they used for a fight scene was the same track that they used for the the born identity car chase scene oh uh, yeah uh, yeah so yeah it was just part of that era there was one part where um Vince is talking about, um, you know, this is after the first murder and they throw the body in the trunk of the car, which to me that was one of the scenes that really established like Jamie Foxx as being like truly relatable as like a, like just an everyday Joe mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I've never seen him do before because it's like if you were thrown into that position, like what would you do? Like you get to a point where it's like you would just kind of default, like almost a Stockholm syndrome thing where it's like this guy's telling me what to do, like I have no choice but to tell. So he's, physically helping carry a dead body into the trunk of his own car. Right, which Tom Cruise says, it's just a dead body, and or it's just a dead guy. And yeah, I, I did like um, Jamie Foxx's reaction a lot. It seemed very like, okay, yeah, if, if a dead body just fell out a window onto the roof of my cab, maybe how I would react, because yeah. he just kind of shuts down, he but not in a out. like, yeah, but not in a big dramatic, like screaming and crying way. It's just kind of like, Oh no, I can't do that. No, you do whatever you want, but like I have to get out of here. I can't. This can't be my life. And, and I, I, I like love that. that how many times Jamie Foxx said, "I can't do this," mm-hmm. like which seems so real. Mm-hmm. It seems exactly like what most normal people would do if they were thrown into that situation and dealing with a person who seems like rational but also super dangerous. Like, and they're giving you instructions. What are you gonna do? You're gonna say, "I can't do this. I can't mm-hmm. do it." You know, they're trying to like shoehorn you into these dangerous situations, like. You're going to say, I can't. I right. cannot do that. Which, I mean, turns into kind of a theme of like the type of person who can and can't do that. And maybe there isn't one. Maybe. Maybe anyone could do yeah. it. I kind of felt like fate was a big thing in this movie. Like that was mm-hmm. a theme that I thought was really uh, interesting. Which is kind of a film noir thing. Like you can't yeah. escape. I don't want to say your destiny as much, but... You know, the idea that Vincent was about to get into somebody else's cab, Max was like, hey, hey, sorry, sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Mm, yeah. And like calls him over. Um, and uh, There's a couple run-ins that are like, oh, oh, you guys yeah. don't know each other, but you will. And For sure, yeah. Yeah. But then also, Vince talks an awful lot about, like, the disconnected atmosphere of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. He tells that story about the guy that dies on the MTA train and rides around Los Angeles for six hours, which... Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that, but yep. Almost too thing. on the nose foreshadowing, but mm. we'll get into that here in a sec. But yeah, it, he, Vince also plays a lot on like tropes and cliches. Like a lot of the dialogue really brings out a lot of like the meat mm-hmm. of the movie, which to a certain extent, this could almost be like a stage play um, because it's so dialogue heavy. Because mm-hmm. there's this one part where he talks about, you know, he's like, if you don't do such and such, I'm going to kill this person. And Max is like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And Vince is like going on these tropes, like he's probably got family and stuff like that. Or he's talking about a cop when they get pulled over. Right, yeah. Um, which is an interesting yeah. scene on its own because he even flashes that gun when he gets out of the car, remember? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's like right after, uh, you know, they're driving along the street with the smashed windshield and the cops pull him over. Right, when they get pulled 
and they're trying to talk themselves out of it or whatever. And then, who flashes the gun? Uh, Vince does when he gets out of the oh, car. Oh right. Mm-hmm. When the cops are like, we got to impound the car, man. And they get out of the car, and Vince was like straight up going to kill those cops, you know? Right. And then they get called off like at the last second yeah. to probably Mark Ruffalo's crime scene. I believe so. Okay. Yeah, I think that was where the plot. That yeah, there was a lot of kind of very convenient Again, that, coincidences. That fate thing, I think. But yeah, if you if fate as a theme could definitely explain a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then we do meet Mark Ruffalo, which I thought was interesting. Uh, what do you think of his character? Because we we saw a pretty decent amount of him. Yeah, I don't I don't know what he was there for. Okay. He kind of he pieced some things together, but we never really followed through. So I don't know if this is a spoiler. He his let's, theory. Let's, let's, let's just go ahead and say spoilers. Let's go with now. It. Yeah. Spoilers now. If you haven't seen Collateral, do some favorites. Two hours. Just anyway. So he connects a bunch of these murders that we know are being committed by Vincent um, in Max's cab. Are, he connects them to another cabbie who was apparent, allegedly killed all these people in one night and then killed himself with no warning. Which, go okay. on, finish your thought. Are we supposed to believe that Vincent has done this before and this is his thing? So, okay, I thought when I heard that, that that was more like an in-movie reference to a true crime case. Okay, oh. I thought Mark Ruffalo was referencing a real-world case of a cab driver who killed some people and then killed himself. Okay? Mm-hmm. So afterward, I went to research it. I found zero evidence that that is the case. Oh. I really, truly thought that they were setting that up as, like, this story is based on something that, I, like, a speculative version of what oh, may have happened and some other thing that happened in 1999 or whenever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's the case. If it is, I've not found anything about it. Um, so I think that you might be onto it. I think that you may have cracked it that he's talking about something that may have happened before with Vincent in Los Angeles before. Because Vincent talks about being in Los Angeles before. Right. But he, like, that's what, is Vincent's plan going off the rails or does he just make it seem like it's going off the rails and this is his MO and he finds an instant, an innocent civilian and loops them in and then makes them basically the killer I makes think out that to it be might killer. be kind of hard to kill multiple people in one night with the same driver and not have them find out I think that's a possibility that's what I'm thinking and this getting in a cab and having the cabbie take you to all these places to kill people mm-hmm. also seems like a, a really easy way to get caught so potentially yeah I mean because you know if you're in the car with somebody for you know 10 hours mm-hmm. then eventually they're going to see your face and that's the last thing Tom Cruise wants he doesn't even want his he doesn't even want his employer. Right. He doesn't want his client to see his own face. And you're going to figure out there's being, like, there's murders being committed right. at all the places you're going to. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, the big shootout at the end. Everyone's, like, running and yeah. screaming by the end. You're going to notice yeah. that that's happening around you. I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a sustainable way to be a hitman. Not at all. And, by the way, somebody did a count. He kills 16 people in one night. Dang. And we can talk about this, too. Did you see either of the John Wick movies by chance? No. Okay, but you're familiar with yes. Okay. I for sure I got a vibe that this movie was kind of like a proto John Wick mm. uh, kind of thing, just with the way that Tom Cruise executes his you know his stunts and things like that. Mm-hmm. Very very similar to the way Keanu Reeves plays John Wick. Like I could definitely see these being like of the same universe kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Which those of you who have seen the John Wick movies, please watch Collateral and tell me that I'm right because I definitely see it a lot. Mm. Although I looked and like n- they don't share any of the same like stunt coordinators or anything okay. like that. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, can't 
I, I don't think that is like there's a direct tie. I just thought it was very very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just only so many ways to action run in a movie. So. Yeah. Well, Tom Cruise does running better than anybody as oh, we all yeah. know. I didn't realize until this movie that like there is a Tom Cruise run, and I'm watching <laughs> it right now. Like the like, you can't. This is an audio medium, but like, yeah. We're backward, yeah. And then there is the one, the scene where uh, Vince tells Max, like, you're going to be me and go into this nightclub and get the backup. After that super ballsy, like, uh, attempt to shut the whole thing down that Jamie right. Foxx does with the briefcase. Yeah, that was... I just did not get a grasp on Tom Cruise's character. Because I feel like in most action movies, that's when he would freak out and just, like that's when the yeah. schism would happen. But instead, he, like, brings him deeper in, and he He's makes mad. him... Yeah, but he makes him be him, which is, like, the riskiest move of all. But boy, does he be him. And that's the thing, like, it was kind of a brilliant move because he sends Jamie Foxx in there, and he knows either, A, best-case scenario, I get the backup, and they don't know that that's not me. Worst-case scenario, I just don't get paid, and they kill this other guy, and they think that I'm dead. Oh, yeah. Kind of a brilliant plan. Like, the logic in this movie, in 90% of the cases, really adds up. Like, they really were good about making sure that the logic was consistent. Yeah. They do a lot of callbacks, too. Like, mm-hmm. the, that is interesting and worth a rewatch. Yeah, yeah. So, that definitely that moment where he throws the briefcase over, Vince is pissed, but he also knows that they've got other options. So, mm-hmm. he wants to employ those other options, which is, in this case, send Max in. Almost as like a punishment. Like, all right, you're going to march back in there, mister, and you're going to get the backup for me, okay? But yeah, I, I, at that point, I, I don't know. That was one of the many moments in the movie where I was like, first of all, surprised because kind of, you know, traditional movie storytelling is like Tom Cruise is going to catch him at the last second before he throws it over the bridge, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was surprised that they went that far. And then having Jamie Foxx, when he goes in there completely nail it, completely nail pretending to be Vincent. I felt like that whole sequence was really original because it would have gone totally differently in yeah. almost every movie. That was great. Oh, At the time awesome. when he's like, you better tell that guy behind me and get his hand off that gun or yeah. death with it. I was like, oh my God. Oh man. Also Javier Bardem, great performance, obviously. Yeah. Um, I love the line where he sees Jamie Foxx and he says, I thought you'd be taller. Yeah. Especially because... Tom Cruise is like five foot one. So <laughs> how did they get that in the movie? <laughs> Amazing. Uh, uh, that was really great. But yeah, like the whole deal with Mark Ruffalo kind of tracking this killer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying that it doesn't seem to serve any purpose except for it triggers the biggest action scene in the movie, which is the shootout in that nightclub. Right. But they could have done that without Mark Ruffalo. Like, he... if They already had the witnesses. Like, that team of detectives, I guess, were tracking these witnesses. Oh, you're right, you're right. He goes to that team. Like, he and his partner mm-hmm. come and say, like, hey, we've, we've got this guy. We think he's killing yeah. all these people. That actually... Okay, so he goes... Mark Ruffalo and his partner yeah. go to... That's the FBI the that FBI, he goes to? Well, Mark Ruffalo's with the LAPD, and he goes to the FBI. Okay. The FBI... He goes to them because of that cabbie connection, and uh, they say, yeah. like, oh, we have witnesses that are dying. So, well, no, no, no. They didn't know their witnesses were dying yet until Mark Ruffalo told them, yo, your witnesses are dying. And then the FBI was like, oh, well, shit, we need to go protect the rest of our witnesses, which you brought up cell phones earlier. This is a good time to kind of bring that up. 
everybody's got a fucking cell phone. Why not just call your witnesses and say, hey, go someplace that you're not normally oh, yeah. at? Yeah, the cell phone... It's, I guess some people have cell phones. All their cell phones are dying, probably. I mean, we're like, talking about, like, lawyers and gangsters. They got yeah, cell phones. Yeah, all right, all please. right. I didn't think Jamie Foxx had a cell phone until the very end when it turns out he has a cell phone. because Wait, at the very end? I thought he, he stole somebody else's cell phone off the street. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, I just missed that part. Yeah, he didn't have his personal cell phone, but he was, like, oh. running down the street, and he steals it from some guy after he's got Vincent's gun from the car crash. Right. And he runs oh. up. So, all right, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but... I love Mark Ruffalo's character because, spoiler, the whole movie you think, oh my god, he is going to be the guy that like ends up saving Max. Yeah. Nope, dead. He's shot immediately as soon as they leave that nightclub. I was shocked. I have that in my notes. Mark Ruffalo, no. Like, I forgot that happened. That was, yeah. That was just like... That was the biggest what? oh shit moment of the whole movie. What was he there for? Yeah, he just dies and that's it. Like it's it's over. And it, like maybe it was to trigger Max because immediately following is when Max is like, "Well, why'd you have to kill him? Like, why'd you have yeah. to kill that guy? He's trying to save me." And then he like flips out, literally. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not. So going back, mm -hmm. I'm still unclear. The they go to the FBI. The FBI. What is the connection between the cabbies and the the cabbie that killed everybody else and the witnesses? None. The the previous story that he tells, the yeah. Mark Ruffalo story, that I think was just like an anecdote that he knew about. Like oh. he was just referencing a cold case that was never solved. I thought that's why he went to the FBI though. It was because like, no. I know this happened. I he, think it's happening again. No, basically what happened was they were at the scene of the first murder. Mm -hmm. And Ruffalo thinks that was a murder. His partner thinks, nah, I don't know if that's true. And through good detective work, Ruffalo is like, no, this guy was shot, he falls out the window, lands on a car, and da 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 And then one of the other cops who was canvassing the apartment complex said, yeah, somebody saw a taxi cab. So when they go to the FBI guys who were surveilling the nightclub where Javier Bardem is at, mm. uh, they see the taxi cab outside, and he's like, I bet that's our guy, because there's a guy outside asking to see Felix why did he come to the FBI in the first place? Because the FBI had taken over the case involving these witnesses for the Felix trial. And that's who Mark Ruffalo's contact who got killed Correct. was involved with. Correct, yes. Got it. It is complicated. It's, and yeah. There's a lot of cop jargon thrown around in those conversations, too, that kind of muddies the waters a little bit. But that, The cab red herring, I think, totally threw me. I was expecting that to come back in some way. and Like another murder cab is cruising the streets a lot. I Angeles thought maybe this would be like Tom Cruise's thing, and like that's what they would be all a connection that like he's done this to so many cab drivers before. Oh my or God. Something. If another cab driver had like passed them and recognized Tom Cruise, that would have been amazing. Ooh. I mean, he couldn't have been alive, though. There's no way he could be leaving <laughs> these cab drivers alive and still be carrying this on. That's true, that's true. But anyway, one moment that we just skipped that I thought was interesting. Okay, what did you make of the, the coyote crossing? I was going to ask you. Was it two coyotes? I thought it was just one. It could have been They two. just cut back to it? Uh, I don't know, because they both, like, stop, and it's definitely a moment, and it's right before the shootout in the nightclub. a big deal about it. Too. Yeah. No, I totally don't, didn't know what to make of it. I didn't know if it was, like, a spiritual, like alpha wolf type even though they're coyotes and not wolves so i did some research because i didn't know what to make of that either but they obviously make a big deal about it apparently um in navajo mythology if a coyote crosses your path 
they say you should turn back and not continue on your way. Ooh. Because if you keep going, something terrible is going to happen. Either there's going to be an accident, you'll be hurt, or you'll be killed. So like Black Cat, kind of. It's, a, it's the Navajo version of Black Cat, except much more specific, I think. Yeah, and yeah, I thought that weirdly was, specific for this movie. Though. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting, like, super like deep-cut Native American mythology thing. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I thought that was that was really cool. So it crosses both Max and Vincent's path. Right. Is that true for? I mean, obviously for Vincent, spoilers, he dies. Oh, so yeah. if he would have turned back, it could have been different. But for Max, I, I yeah, it's um technically, I mean, Max is at the wheel, but or but Vincent is more or less driving. Mm-hmm. You know, he's it's it's his journey. So, and Max is definitely a different person at the end of this, mm-hmm. but is he better off? Like, that's a tricky one. Um, I mean, he's he's probably gonna bang Jay Bing Smith, so they got better <laughs> off, I would say. Uh, yeah, baseline better off. He's seen 16 dead bodies, I mean, more than he's them, already but seen, but he saw most of them. He saw yeah, like he's seen people 13. get straight up murdered, yeah. so next to him, uh, escorting balance, him. yeah. yeah. Shot in the head for not knowing enough. Uh, was it Louis Armstrong trivia? Oh no, Miles Davis. Miles, Miles Davis, Davis trivia. Yeah. Which that was a cool scene. Uh, that Oof. was a very tense scene. Yeah, and at the end, so Max does the whole like, like freaks out about it, and Vincent's like, "Well, grow up!" Like he didn't, he got it wrong. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Like it's just whatever. And uh-huh. Max is like, "Well, would you killed him if he got it right?" And that seemed to be a real moral, like, yeah. quandary for Vincent. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. Like, yeah, you would have. You're a hitman. Yeah. Did you call me hitman? Hitman. <laughs> yes. All right. A hitman. Hitman. Whatever. It's one word. Um, <laughs> that, why, I don't know why that moment was so big either. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to, I, I don't really know how to parse out, like, every single scene there but the the whole thing in the jazz club definitely seemed like because for one thing when they walk in Vincent's the only one that knows he's there to kill somebody mm-hmm. Max does not know that right so he thinks naively that they're just there because Vincent really just wants to go hang out in a jazz club for a little while he's a weird guy yeah he's a strange dude but uh Max is just kind of he hasn't quite figured it out yet that mm-hmm. like they're not taking a break they just need to they're he's just gonna he's kill somebody where they go and so that was definitely, I felt like, a turning point for Max's understanding of the person that he's dealing with. Because mm-hmm. he still is kind of in normal, real-world circumstances. And he's almost seemingly forgotten. Be honest, when they had to crash toward the end, mm-hmm. had you forgotten about the body in the trunk? Because I definitely did. Yeah, yes, absolutely. I was even there. Yeah. Going back to the jazz club, though, I do think I thought it was interesting that he intervened. I think, yeah, getting yeah. the whole they're not getting a break from what this night is supposed to be. And the fact that he was kind of trying to intervene in on this guy's behalf that he didn't know. But he knew where this was going because he's yeah. already seen it once before. That was interesting, too. Instead of being kind of that silent bystander, he was trying to save this guy's life. But yeah, um, and I loved the. One of the few shots that really stands out to me in this movie is when they're at the table mm-hmm. and they have a moment where the jazz club owner realizes that Vincent is there to kill him and the static shot just rotates and you've got like just like kind of slowly rotates around him and you see just the background kind of like blur in motion behind mm-hmm. him as his face changes. That can be goosebumps when I watched it this mm-hmm. time. I thought it was a really, really cool shot. Yeah. 
But um, while on the subject of the style of shooting, uh, taking a slight detour here, was it just me or did it look like the whole movie was shot on a camcorder? Yeah, and I thought that, I mean, it was almost definitely intentional. I don't know why, but yeah, that very gritty kind of low res look. So there's a real reason for this. Oh, um, it was actually shot on a camcorder. Not a camcorder specifically, but... One of those little brick cell phones that everyone keeps using. <laughs> it looks like it was shot on a Motorola Razr, but no. Um, so it almost kind of... A, this is kind of an experimental thing that Michael Mann was doing here. He, Michael Mann, the director, not the DP, he said in an interview that he wanted to try to make a specific look out of digital video rather than trying to make digital look like film. Oh. Now this is at a time, this is very, very early in digital filmmaking as a mainstream thing. Like I want to say Star Wars episode two was the first movie that actually shot 100% on digital. Oh. And that was only two years before this. Oh. And that was Lucas money. Like that yeah. was Star Wars money that they had to throw behind it. This is not quite there. So. They shot it on digital, but they were trying to not make it imitate the look of film. They tried to, like, just stick with it. Mm -hmm. Now, they had a practical reason for this also, as Michael Mann says, which is that they could shoot in the low light without additional lighting. Because mm -hmm. digital video tends to pick up low light better than film does mm -hmm. without extra lighting. So that kind of makes sense. They shot about 20 minutes of the movie on film or on film but that was mostly the nightclub scene, shootout scene mm -hmm. which I didn't really go back to look at it after I learned that but I feel like that did look a little bit sharper personally I don't know yeah but at any rate so that was Michael Mann's explanation but Paul Cameron who was the original DP who quit after three weeks of principal photography um, because he had major creative differences huh. uh, he says that the digital cameras were used they as this is from IMDb lacked the ergonomics color bandwidth and standard camera lens support that they needed the cameras or the cameras. like the, the production they had available. Oh, the cameras okay. that were available at the time mm -hmm. um, these interviews and claims were brought to the attention of Panavision USA who subsequently developed the Genesis camera system based on that feedback specifically and its usage was pioneered in Superman Returns 2006, so two years later. Wow. So this movie is almost like the case study that forced Panavision, the camera giant, mm -hmm. to develop a better camera because this one looked like it was shot on a consumer camcorder. Wow. Oh, that's really interesting. I totally thought the whole thing was intentional, but, but film it, history. That's what you believe. Like, <laughs> or the cinematographer who quit after three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but... You know, digital looks a lot better now, and nobody's ever made a movie that looks like it. Well, that's not true. A lot of people make movies that look like they're shot on camcorders, but they're probably shot on camcorders. Yep. Um, Independent films, man. Yes, Support. Yes, yes, yes. Anyhow, so there's a little mm. sidebar about the style, which I thought was kind of distracting and, like, probably the worst thing about the movie, in my opinion. The quality something. itself. Yeah, mm. the look of it. So anyway, getting back on track, um, right before Max intentionally crashes into the taxi. Mm -hmm. First of all, that was an interesting discussion that they have because this whole time, Vince has been trying to have these philosophical conversations with Max. Like, first right. of all, don't don't procrastinate your dreams. Mm. You're going to work the same shitty job for 12 years, blah, blah, blah. 
you know, if you really wanted it, you'd go out and do it, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and then also trying to justify his, like, you know, I kill one guy that you don't know and you, you freak out, but, like, did you ever hear about Rwanda or this, that, and oh, yeah. He keeps bringing that up. So he keeps, like, making these kind of, like, existential arguments mm-hmm. to Max, but it has, like, a philosophical backfire because <laughs> Max doesn't take the same kind of existential position he takes a totally nihilistic position where he's just driving 80 miles an hour down surface roads and and he's just like fuck you vince and like hits the hits the barricade and flips the car like i thought that was a fascinating like build up and uh, the way it, it worked out when he crashed the car and they're both kind of in a daze i thought that was really cool it's two types of philosophers in this world but yeah i did think that i thought was totally unique too just the all those intense action scenes being punctuated by these like really intimate conversations and philosophical kind of, I mean, it was kind of one-sided with Vincent just representing his, his kind of highfalutin view of the world, but having those really quiet philosophical moments and then the really loud action sequence as in kind of punctuating them and then merging them in the end was cool. Yeah, that was, didn't know where that was going originally, but I did like, there was one line Vincent said, just to call it out, but the, maybe his third kill or something, and he was like, you killed him for no good reason, and he's like, everyone dies for no good reason. There's yeah, never a yeah. good reason for people to die, and I was like, cool. True. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, that's a good uh, one. He's got some, he's got some zingers in this yeah. movie. Like, he's, he's been thinking on this a lot. He for sure has figured out how to justify his job where he mm-hmm. killed a dozen plus people in a night sometimes. Um, and yeah, I feel like that really does speak to like the meticulous development of these characters and of the story. Um, so that obsessive attention to detail, I feel like really paid off in that regard. Cause like, these are super fleshed out characters and it comes out in their discussions with each other. Right. That's another thing about Vincent, kind of just on his character. He really gets off on Jamie Foxx yelling at his boss. What is that about? Like he, I don't, is it like an everyman kind of champion thing? More or less. I don't know. I took that as partly Vince maybe just like fucking with Max, like trying to, mm-hmm. you know, but also I, it kind of adds a level of sincerity to him trying to tell Max, like, do what is good for you. Mm-hmm. Don't just like grind away your whole life trying to pay the bills. Right. Um, Cause these people which, are screwing you over, which he's yeah, the one who points that out. Which kind of complicates the idea that he was planning to kill Max the whole time, which Truly, I do not know if that was the case or not. And even with that, I don't know if that was the case or not. Because mm-hmm. it could be a matter of, like, him legitimately wanting Max to, you know, have a reason to quit his job by, like, cussing out his boss. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of forcing him out and, like, doing something better with his life. Or it could be just him saying, like, Vince basically thinking, like, well, this guy's going to be dead in three hours anyway, so he might as well do this and get some catharsis. Mm. It could go either way. And that's one of the things I think is so brilliant about the way they develop his character. Yeah. I mean, once he knows that he's a killer. Is there any version of this that could have ended with Jamie Foxx living though? In Vincent's plan, is there any version where Max could have lived? Potentially, only because I feel like, if you were to describe Tom Cruise to a sketch artist, could you mm-hmm. do it? Ooh. Middle-aged guy, gray hair, stubble, war suit. Yeah. Squarish About five foot two. Yeah. Um, but no, seriously, like I, I, I think it is very conceivable that they go through the whole night, Max, knowing that Vincent is a killer, drops him back off the airport, and 
Vincent just disappears into the ether mm-hmm. because Vincent, I guarantee, is not his real name. Not even close, I'm sure. Right, right. Um, that's the one thing where, I, for a while, I was thinking that if this movie was updated for today, it could very easily translate to, like, an Uber driver. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is with, like, Uber and Lyft and, you know, rideshare systems is, like, you have the other person's information logged. Mm. With a taxi, it's kind of a unique situation because this person getting in your car is a complete stranger. Right. So... Being a complete stranger, I definitely think that there is a possibility, slim, mm-hmm. but a possibility that, yes, Max lives, Vincent just disappears. Because, like I said, I mean, what's he going to do? Go to the cops? You know. Right. Vincent could be in Hong Kong by next, by, in the next three hours. Who knows? At any rate, so we have the car, the car crash. Mm-hmm. And Vincent takes off running. At that point, this movie goes from uh, crime drama to slasher movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it takes a hard genre turn to slasher movie because, for one thing, he disappears into the shadows. Mm-hmm. Max is more concerned with getting out of the car. Cop shows up. Totally different situation where he's like, sir, you were involved in a car accident. There's an ambulance on its way, this, that, and the other thing. Like, super helpful cop. As a, I mean, truthfully, Every time we see the cops in this movie, it's like, that's kind of Michael Mann Hallmark. They are just doing their job. <laughs> like, the first time, it's like, yeah, cops use a smashed windshield with, like, blood in your car. They're probably going to ask some questions. Mm-hmm. And then this time also, it's like, this guy was, like, being super helpful. Yeah. Um, oh, that was so sad. And I, so close to help, and then it was yeah. turned so quickly. And honestly, not remembering how this movie went from seeing it more than a decade ago... I seriously thought Vince was going to come out of the shadows and shoot that cop. Like, mm. I for sure thought that was going to happen. But yeah, I, that was a very interesting interaction where Max ends up, like, cuffing the cop and, like, stealing his gun or whatever. Yeah. And then takes off running after Tom Cruise, which you know you'll never catch running Tom Cruise. He's the fastest <laughs> man on the fucking planet. So small, but so quick. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, I do think, totally, like, genre change. I think this was kind of a couple different movies all in one and yeah that moment on is till the end basically is really tense and it's a long time to be like holding on to that suspension but or that suspense yeah because then he goes to annie phone died like the whole thing watching that from the windows Mm -hmm. and they do a lot of interesting things with kind of shadows and light and stuff which is it's cool the the tricks he uses to make those scenes so tense are really effective. Yeah, and I, I did for sure love the fact that, like, to our point earlier, this takes place at such a specific moment in time where it's like cell phones were everywhere, but not everybody had a cell phone mm-hmm. necessarily. So with Max having to steal that guy's phone on the street and, like, I thought that was kind of hilarious where it's like, there's like, hey man, what the hell? And then he just pulls the gun, he pulls the gun on the guy and he's like, I'm sorry, I gotta go. Um, Classic, yeah. like steal the kid's bike, steal the guy's so, phone. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, okay. I mentioned earlier that like 95% of the logic plays in this movie. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I, I feel like is a real stretch in logic is he, Max calls Annie's office phone number mm-hmm. and she is not in her office and she still picks up the call was that because then isn't that how tom cruise figures out where she is because the she the, answers yeah. another line of her office phone so she has a phone in the library but am i to understand that every single phone in that 
like 16 store like mall no 20 story because right. they're on the 14th she's on the floor, yeah 16 floor or whatever mm-hmm. and there's several stories in like a 20 story department of justice building every single phone is on the switchboard for every other phone in the office i thought maybe she had like a desk at the library or something like she had a couple phones that connected to her extension Maybe. Maybe I feel like it was just a convenient lapse of logic. Well, then that's how Tom Cruise finds her, right? right? Like he goes to her desk, and she's not there. Her cell phone is there, which would never happen today. But oh, hell no. <laughs> back then it was just a brick that you could make calls on. <laughs> but he sees the phone, and there's a light for the floor she's on. Right. Well, because it says specifically like records room or something. Like yeah. That. And so she. She was in the records room two floors away. Yeah. And yet a call that went to her office, which she had a phone next to her with a light on for her office to answer her own call. Because there's like, I don't know, 12 lights on that phone in yeah. conservatively 60 offices in that building. Maybe she just had a lot of phone. Like, she... <laughs> I don't know. She has satellite offices throughout the building. I don't know. It's a lawyer thing. We'd have to consult a lawyer. <laughs> Not just a lawyer, but a lawyer that actually like works for the DOJ. I don't know. I, and has I, an office phone. I've I've been inside DOJ buildings before, and I don't think that's how the phones work. <laughs> I could be wrong. I don't know. I'll give it a pass, though, because that seems like the one logic failure. Um, Second logic failure oh, in that no. scene. Who would not take off their heels in that situation? <laughs> it's a Jurassic World type, like, flaw that... If you're being chased by a serial killer, take off your damn shoes. Do you think that in a moment of serious mortal panic, you would have the presence of mind to be like, let me get my shoes off real quick? Maybe not. Like, if you're hiding, like, on the floor, I wouldn't think of it. But when she's, like, running with Jamie Foxx, I'd be like, fuck this, throw the shoes, and go. That takes time. You don't have time. Yeah, but when you're on the MTA or something, like, later, I would have been like, this was a fucking mistake. Take off the shoes. Lose them. I don't know. I... Uh, I, perhaps that's you have the the good fortune to always be wearing flats <laughs> I'm just saying I am I mean, not going to outrun Tom Cruise in my pumps yeah, it's sure. not going to oh, happen it's not going to happen barefoot it's not going to happen if you're in <laughs> fucking so leave the shoes on middle. might as well that, okay, third logic flaw nobody outruns Tom Cruise <laughs> like that's not they had to like happen. get in the elevator before there was there was mechanics involved yeah did he cut he just cut the power he just got the firepower to that floor, which blew my mind. I didn't know that was a thing yeah, to do. Because the elevators still work, and I guess all the other lights, but... Yeah, I, like, literally just the power on that one floor, which okay. I that seems very convenient. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, also, that whole... Oh, you, you just raised a finger. This, is, a, this is in an earlier scene, Please. but another flaw. So they all go into that nightclub yes. to protect the witness. The FBI, the LAPD, mm-hmm. they're trying to protect this witness. And then when Tom Cruise shoots him, he is literally abandoned in the middle of the floor. Everyone has cleared out, mm-hmm. and there is a clear shot to this witness, who he shoots like six times. You're talking about the guy that looks a lot like Kim Jong-un? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, nobody, there was literally like six or eight people that came into that mm-hmm. club to protect this witness. One of them got shot, and one of them was like tending to his wounds, but... Yeah. Bad job. Bad job, FBI. Chaos. I don't know. Oh, yeah. The whole, like, final sequence. Did that feel like a chase dream to you? Oh, like an actual chase dream? an actual dream. Like, I don't know about you, but 
you know, there's a lot of different, like, stress dreams that people have. Mm-hmm. Like, say, like, if you have a dream about losing your teeth, that's about, like, losing control mm-hmm. or whatever, and things like that. I don't have, like, when I do have, like, stress dreams that I actually remember, it's always a chase dream. Oh. Where, like, I am being pursued, mm-hmm. and you have to try to, like, hide, and you have mm-hmm. to, or, or, like, conceal yourself or whatever. This felt so much like that. It was, like, uncanny. Ooh. It was weird. My stress dreams are the opposite, honestly. Oh. So I, my stress dreams are that I am stuck somewhere and I oh. can't do the thing I really need to do. So I, like, will spend a lot of time walking back and forth in one place, knowing I need to just, like, go into another room and do something else. So I don't have the chase ones. Oh, okay. But that's really interesting. I know that feeling of being like, oh, my God, this is real. Like, this yeah. is you nailed exactly that feeling. Yeah. So that's cool. But yeah, for sure. Like that was, like I said, it kind of plays into like a slasher movie trope because I mean, this definitely felt like the end of like a Friday the 13th kind of a movie. Yeah. Like that, where this guy is like, you know, you've seen, you just spent an hour and 45 minutes seeing how deadly this guy is mm-hmm. and how committed to killing people he is. He does this for a living, he does Max. This for a living. Yeah, yeah. I do this. This is my job, this Max. This is my yeah. job. Which the whole, before we realize that she's not in her office, the whole setup where she's on the phone and like he finds her office. That was, I thought on par, oh no, have you seen Silence of the Lambs? Yes. Oh God, Mm -hmm. that was on par with the same scene in Silence of the Lambs where like the FBI is surrounding the house and it cuts oh. back and forth, and you realize, oh shit, FBI's at the wrong house! Yeah. That, that, like, trope is so ubiquitous. Like, it is everywhere, but it is so satisfying every single time. Just, when it works, it works. Yeah. You know? But yeah, so that, that whole sequence. And also, a uh, fun fact, again, from that uh, chase scene, Tom Cruise really fell when he stepped on that office chair. Michael Mann liked the anomaly so much, he left it in the film. I was wondering. That looked pretty, like... I, I for sure made a note of that. I mean, I he's like, a good actor, but... I made a note that said, clumsy stunts? Great. <laughs> okay, apparently Love that was not on purpose, no. but it looks... It looks so real. I'm so glad that it actually is real. That just Tom yeah. Cruise busted his ass. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, so yeah, and they end up on the MTA train, which brings it full circle to that very on-the-nose anecdote that Tom Cruise brings up at the <laughs> beginning of the movie about the guy that dies in the MTA. Again, super stressful because they're on the same train together. They right. have that moment where they're trying to see if like anybody's going to get off the train. Go on. It's like, how, how did he know? Like to, He had to pick right or left mm-hmm. first when he was like coming out of the building. How did he know they were going down to the MTA? How did he know he was? they were getting on that one train when there was at least two trains that arrived at the same time? Yeah. I thought he picked the wrong one because it looked like they had gone downstairs and, but. It got a little bit stretchy. Yeah. But, you know, I, I feel like, again, that kind of plays into what I was talking about earlier with like the fate theme, but then also again with like, again, it picks up very much like slasher movie logic by that point where this guy... He's everywhere. He's everywhere. He never makes the wrong turn. And right up to the moment where they're on the train and they just have that weird shootout after the lights go out, and I thought Tom Cruise's death scene in this movie was perfect. It was... That was beautiful. It was touching. It was, like, so suspenseful because, like, really, you don't know anything about who got hit or whatever Mm -hmm. and the way it's framed with with vince like you know he's got his empty and he doesn't break eye contact with max he just drops the empty magazine and he reaches down to his belt and goes through like the full i thought that was super real because again i've known a lot of cops in Mm -hmm. my life 
and it's like he's got the gun still aimed and he just drops the empty magazine reaches down to his belt goes through the full motion and realizes that he does not have another magazine okay so if that speaks to really meticulous like military style training where mm-hmm. it's like you just train yourself muscle memory style mm-hmm. and again damn they really developed the hell out of these characters because that's something that I feel like a lot of directors just would not think about Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of actors or directors don't mm-hmm. think about. So, yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting moment where it's just he, he makes that full motion and there's just nothing there. And he's so focused he does not even realize that he has a at least one bullet in his abdomen, mm-hmm. you know? I And I think I could have just misremembered this, but to me, I thought that what happened was he grabbed it and it just slipped out of his hand. And that's why, because I thought the sequence of cuts was... He grabbed it, and then you saw the magazine drop to the ground. Ooh, so I thought he had it had slipped out of his hand, and he was just like losing control. But that could be. I might be misremembering. It may not also. be. Ooh-wee. Either way, work. It works because it's very. It's like a slow. He goes from fully functioning to just like you don't really. I didn't realize what was happening for a long time, and I was like, why is he just sitting and talking? And then you see that like he's clearly bleeding out. And, and the way they were, the way they revealed the blood on his shirt was so subtle because like they have that one frame and then he just like drops his arm and you happen to see just like, a little bit of that red on mm-hmm. his shirt and as he starts to realize it and he's just like well this is it I guess yeah and he sits down and that's that you know oh poor gray-haired Tom Cruise <laughs> but anyway yeah so that was the that was pretty much like the rundown of the whole movie um now since we're you know we like to kind of say what if sometimes mm-hmm. I, I, I personally feel like this is not my favorite movie I wouldn't even necessarily put this in like the top 10 of uh, uh, of my favorite movies I do think it's a really great neo-noir mm-hmm. I think it is a really great movie for its time and I, I don't know first of all would you recommend this movie um, I feel like I feel about this one like I did about the Burbs. If you oh. love Tom Cruise or Jamie Foxx and you want more of them, or old Mark Ruffalo, I like Mark Ruffalo kind He's of made this that. movie. He's not no, that. and I love him, and I love that like he is huge now, and you're like, oh look at this. He's like unfortunate hair. Yeah, in that movie. Like, that's <laughs> I liked it. I liked it. Beard. Yeah. I just uh, he just seems like such a nice guy. They'd be like, this is what you're dressing like, and he's like, oh, do I have to? And you're like, yep. Get on set, and he's like, okay. All right. um, yeah, if you if you want more of that, I would say absolutely, absolutely watch it. I enjoyed it. I liked watching it. I'll probably watch it again because oh, okay. I need to reprocess. All right, okay. but not anytime soon. We've got a lot to do first. I feel like this is one of uh, Michael Mann's better movies. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of his style, although he is one of the most hit or miss directors I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for the stupid camcorder style, I think it would be much higher on my list. But I mean, I can forgive that. I mean, it was a gamble. It was an experiment. Didn't work. But I can't really hold that against him. It's, it's distracting. Mm-hmm. But I was curious. I oh, what, The whole thing I was building up to was, even though this is not necessarily my favorite or even like a top 10 favorite, I feel like this is almost a perfect movie hmm. in the sense that it is 100% original and I feel like it is exactly the movie that it was trying to be. I feel like it is a 100% successful movie in the sense that it achieved exactly what it wanted to achieve. Okay. I mean, I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that? I know that's kind of a weird criteria for a perfect movie and it's kind of a bold thing to say, but 
I was, I was curious, like, what, what do you think about that? Hmm. I think that's probably true. I don't know if I would call it perfect, mm-hmm. especially with what we've said. Like, if the, the visuals were distracting, I think that's a big piece of it. But I don't know. I don't know. I think what's perfect for you just may not be what's perfect sure. for me. Now, granted, this is assuming that Michael Mann wasn't just lying out his ass about, like, oh, yeah, we totally did that on purpose, okay. made it digital, made it look digital on purpose. Like, if... If he is to be believed, then I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I get it. And perfect um, and intentional don't necessarily nah, have nah, to be one-to-one, but yeah. Not at all. Um, but at any rate, uh, so I, hypothetically, we do mm. always talk about hypotheticals occasionally on this program. Let's play the remake game mm-hmm. because this is something in particular that I thought of at the very end of the movie because one thing about it is it is ultimately – and. Uh, in the current climate of filmmaking, I, I thought this stood out more than it would have if I'd watched this even a year ago, but this is sort of like a damsel in distress movie at the mm. end, even though it adds up, mm-hmm. which by the way, we didn't even talk about the fact that the whole reason Vince was at the DOJ building when Max got there to drop off the lawyer was because he was scoping it out because he knew that she was on the list. And did he know that she had just gotten out of his cab? I don't know if like, he knew that much. Because he gets in the cab and has almost exactly the same conversation with Max that um, Annie and Max yes, just had. Yes, yes, Was that coincidence? I feel like that was just supposed to be like the idle chatter that you have with like a cab driver. Okay, alright. I don't know. Because I, I, it, it almost and I, I will briefly bring in my experience as a rideshare driver you kind of have the same conversation a thousand times with mm-hmm. people. Like there's a very limited amount of conversation topics like when you have a passenger and you've never met before, you have very little in common. Like, people always ask, like, oh, is this your main gig or do you have a full-time job? And things like that, you mm-hmm. know? So I imagine, like, it's the same with a cab driver. I've sure. taken, like, three taxi dri- taxi rides in my life. But, right. but yeah, I mean, from the driver's standpoint, yeah, you get the same kind okay. of conversation a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was very true to life with Jamie Foxx's performance where he had kind of prepared responses where he kind of talks about like, oh yeah, starting this limo service, not just about hiring people and buying cars, want to make it like a nightclub experience, blah, blah, blah. Mm. He's kind of got this like rehearsed thing, probably because he's had this conversation a thousand times before. Sure. And that makes sense. And I can, I can definitely follow that. I did think it was a little funny. Did you ever see the Californian sketch on SNL. Oh, of course. It was exactly this conversation, basically, of like, <laughs> no, if you take the 95, it'll be jammed. But if yeah. we go on surface streets, like, so yeah, maybe much. true to life, pretty Californians. Um, but anyway, back to the the question at hand here. So the remake game, like, when, when I realized that this was kind of, at the very end, like, kind of the last shot, I realized this is sort of like a damsel in distress movie, but uh, sort of. Mm-hmm. I thought it might be interesting to play the remake game if we gender flip the main characters. Oh. All the main characters. Let's say the four leads, which I would say were... Is Mark Ruffalo number four? Yeah, I was going to say Jamie Foxx, Tom Cruise, Mark Ruffalo, Jada Pinkett-Smith. If you were to recast those with gender flip all of them, I'm curious Mm. as like who you might put in those roles. Ooh, I would love to see... Sandra Bullock be Vincent. Ooh, it's Vincent. Yeah, I think we haven't seen her as a true villain that I can think of. I kind of figured, I, I, for some reason, I thought that name was going to come up. Ooh. But I, I didn't know yeah. in, in what role. But mm-hmm. that's, yeah, as Vincent, that's pretty good. I think it would be a similar, like, really well known, but never really done dark like this. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
who would be Max? Kind of an everyman. Yeah, like a charming, friendly, but everyman type character. Right. And I think the trap would be to kind of make it into a Zoe Deschanel dream girl kind of thing, but not like, a yeah, the manic pixie kind of trope, but mm-hmm. they have to be somebody really like engaging. Uh-huh. Did you have people in mind? No, not at all. I was actually just, I didn't want to like overthink that one mm-hmm. in particular. I would almost want Jada Pinkett Smith to play the Vincent character. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've seen the TV show Gotham, which is not great, but it's she, been on the list. So she plays a villain. Right. And she's pretty damn good at playing a convincing villain. Oh, I could totally see that. Like, like, yeah, she can be... She's always got a coolness to her that, like, could easily be dark. Yeah, she could definitely play it with, like, convincing confidence mm-hmm. and have those conversations from the back of the car. I could see the energy being almost the same as what mm-hmm. she played for Annie, yeah. but just a little bit harder, a little darker. Yeah. I mean, you mm-hmm. figure, like, okay, for the Max character in particular, like, especially because Jada Pinkett Smith is a little bit older now, mm-hmm. you know? I feel like she could, like, fill the Vincent role a, a little bit, you know, pretty convincing, like... The Max character, I mean, you pick her somebody that's like kind of, I mean, Jamie Foxx, the chameleon that he is, he kind of disappears into this character who's kind of like mm-hmm. a beige personality mm-hmm. is the best way that I can think of to describe it. Like somebody who's just like, a, you know, lofty dreams, working a dead-end job, blah, blah, blah. Like nothing particularly exciting about this person. Somebody who's probably like, I don't know, how old would you say he is probably in this movie? Like 35, 40 maybe? Yeah, 35 was going to be my guess. Um, it could be somebody like, oh God, what is her name? This is an off-the-wall choice, but, like, Jenna Fisher? She played, uh... Oh, Pam from Pam. Yeah, office. from the office. I think she could be, like, an interesting Max. Like, oh. Like, kind of unassuming. Yeah. Because I think the biggest factor is, like, you gotta be kind of unassuming right. in that role, right? But turn hard. Like, uh-huh. it's gotta be surprising when they turn hard. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Uh-huh. And I would love to see her in stuff again. She's been kind of, I feel like, MIA for a little bit, mm-hmm. so... And then for, like, a Mark Ruffalo character, maybe go somebody a little bit older. Like, I was thinking, like, Sigourney Weaver maybe playing the Mark Ruffalo character. Whoa. Would we make her slick back her hair and have one (laughs) earring? Same haircut. Same same styling. (laughs) And then as the Annie character, who's a good good dude to play a uh, slick but, oh, still Mm. human after all kind of uh, uh, attorney. Mm Mm-hmm. You could see, like, a Chris Evans or something. Oh, yeah, that's Someone would be like, they could maybe save themselves, but it's cool that yeah. they're not. Someone kind of like, yeah, you could see them being a little, like, businessy, but still very uh-huh. likable, and you can tell there's chemistry right off the bat and all that. Hmm. I would go a little older than Chris Evans. Oh, really? I don't know. I, I feel like maybe... Uh... I might even bring back Jamie Foxx to play the uh, Jamie Smith character. And oh, okay. Jamie Smith to play the Tom Cruise character. <laughs> we'll just keep the cast, just keep shuffle the cast, them. Just shuffle them around. Yeah, Tom That's Cruise plays the cast. I mean, it would be interesting. I think with that cast, you could have almost any of them play any of those roles. Like, they've all done something like that. I feel like if it actually was stage production, they could rotate. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if you like, you, you know how, like, with stage productions of Frankenstein mm-hmm. they have the, oh the yeah doc, like Dr. the Benedict Cumberbatch the they, uh-huh. they like switch roles each mm-hmm. night or whatever <laughs> this could be like a four way swap of like of, of roles in just, on the stage version just pick one from the hat I was when you were first talking about um, who they wanted to play Max I thought you might say there was a female actress that was that potentially yeah. that would have been interesting really having interesting, like yeah. a female cab driver with Vincent and mm-hmm. I think that that dynamic would be 
kind of that still same mousiness turning into yeah. something totally different by the end. Yeah. I think that could be interesting. Especially because, like, you know, you get the dynamic because, like, it's fucking Tom Cruise in your car. I mean, that could throw an interesting wrench into it at the beginning. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, shit, I'm going to get two numbers in one night. Oh, no. no this guy's a murderer. <laughs> this guy's a He's a psychopath. Um, but, uh, also, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, this is a movie so original and really well executed all around, other than, as we mentioned, the bizarre photography choices. I kind of want to get your thoughts on this movie being largely forgotten 13 years later, you know? It's like, yeah, people might be aware of it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really come up a lot. It's like, you kind of have to mention it right. for anybody to even be like, oh yeah, that movie. And I include myself in this. Like, I hadn't even thought about this movie in years until we had this. And I was like, oh yeah, this might be a good movie for the podcast because I remember liking it when I was in high school. Yeah, I, I think if I remember that time correctly, it was like Transporter, all that stuff was kind of <laughs> right. out, Man on Fire. All of, There was a big boom of movies like this. And I think the differences. Like, it is different, and it is an interesting take on it, but they're so subtle that it's it's hard to market that, I think. Mm-hmm. So maybe just kind of gotten forget, got forgotten because it was just one in a bunch of them at that time. Yeah, and, possibly. You know, Tom Cruise has plenty of movies. Yeah. It's funny because I just recently read a... Um, when I was prepping for this episode, I read a, uh, an article for Entertainment Weekly that came out in 2014, and mm-hmm. it was like basically a 10-year retrospective on Collateral. But really what it was, was like Entertainment Weekly published some dude's blog post. Uh, <laughs> not literally, but like that was kind of what it was. It was just some person's love letter talking about, uh, like, you know, film nerds always pick like a, a very strong choice to be their favorite movie. Mine, for five years at least, uh, was Collateral, blah, blah, blah. And it was like this really long thing like talking about how, basically like, what we're talking about right now. <laughs> like this podcast. Very similar to this, like they're talking about how this- Entertainment is, Weekly. Yeah, you know, Entertainment Come Weekly. Come find us. Book, uh, uh. <laughs> anyway, I, yeah, I, I don't know what to chalk it up to. I think you're probably right because that period was sort of a turning point in action movies where you kind of were moving away from like the 90s style to like the Born Identity movies and the Transporter, Fast and Furious, all this mm. other kind of crap. So, crap. I, I say that like I don't love all those movies. I do. But it was kind of a turning point. This is more of a... Realistically, this is almost like a return to Michael Mann's 80s movies, mm. which are in turn film noir throwbacks. So mm. I understand how I got lost in the shuffle. I'm just kind of surprised that it has not been rediscovered since then. Well, um, the DVDs are floating out there, so... They are. I mean, <laughs> people got them. And I was curious, like, uh, I should have mentioned this much, much earlier on, but, like, did any other movies come to mind while you were watching this? Like, anything else that you may have seen mm. that this reminded you of or anything like that? Um, I did. I mean, there's a whole genre of kind of taxi action movies. Oh. That definitely... I mean, there's, Can like... Tell? What is... I'm going to get all the names Sorry, wrong. Really They're like... all the same, but taxi... Um, You're talking about Taxi Driver? No. The, oh, oh, the Jimmy Fallon yeah. movie with Queen Latifah? Oh, Not the boy. same, but just as a genre of the, like, two strangers meeting in a cab and one is a cab driver and then adventures ensue. I think there's so many different ways you can kind of take that story that it's, it's, its a, own kind of subgenre. It's a great setup. It is. It's I mean, a, yeah. I'm actually shocked that there has not been a major Hollywood movie made about, like, Uber, Lyft, Rideshare set up. I'm Actually, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's maybe too new, but it's been a couple years now. Oh, it's, wow, there's, yeah. there's enough time for development. I mean, doors wide open, but yeah, I don't know. I'm trying. It did feel, I mean, it felt kind of not being the super action 
person, it did feel very much of, of that time of the man on fires and the transporters and kind of my impression of those movies without having seen them of that really, especially with the camcorder feel. That's kind of how I picture them in my head of that really gritty kind of fast moving, lots of running, lots of sound design coming at you. And then that kind of bumping action like techno song yeah. that always plays whenever there's there's a chase or a big shootout or whatever. It was funny to me that you mentioned the transporter and um, God, what was the other movie that you just said? Like Man on Fire. Transporter and Man on Fire. You mentioned those two in the same breath. I thought that was very interesting. Was impressive about that until you said that you had not actually seen them, and I was like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> fair. Because <laughs> I feel like those are two very, very. They're different. different they're different, but, and yeah. I know enough about both of them to know they're not the same. But it's just that <laughs> time of movies, movie, yeah. yeah, factually and objectively, but <laughs> kind of just my perception of action films in during that time that were kind of big star led one man that you're kind of following through mm-hmm. a series of different kind of sequences that's yeah yeah I, I don't know I, I still feel like it is a super original movie that only doesn't get talked about because people just don't remember it for some reason mm-hmm. and I would strongly encourage anybody who enjoys because it's not as much an action movie as I mean a thriller mm-hmm. I would call it a dramatic thriller with some action scenes like, it's not all car chases and shootouts. No, definitely not. There are actually zero car chases in this movie, right? Yeah, it's kind of just one car. Closest thing to a car chase is when they get pulled over. Yeah. Um, there are a handful of shootouts. Uh, uh, like, not many. Um, Some just one person, one-sided yeah, shootout. Just yeah. shooting. Like, literally, I think there's two shootouts in this movie. And one of them is just Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've listened this far and you haven't actually watched this movie, though, I feel bad for you. Although, I highly recommend you still watch it because there is so much to this movie. Um, two hours, which I, some people consider a long movie. For me, two hours is like average length. That's, yeah, that's movie right? movie length. Yeah. It's movie, yeah. That's movie, movie length. length. One and a half is short and anything yeah. past two is, is long. So. All right. Well, so, yeah, this movie's like an hour and 59 minutes. So, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's right on the cusp of being long. No, no, no. Past an hour is long. Or past two hours is long. Two uh, hours is movie length. But at any rate, yeah. If you haven't, if you, if you've listened this far and have not actually watched Collateral, I highly recommend you still do. Spoilers and all, it's a good, good movie. I, I would give it four and a half out of five. I don't know about you. Like, okay. how, how would you rate this movie? Maybe three and a half out of five. Three and a half. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but still, you know, recommended, right? I mean, you yeah. like recommended. Yeah. yeah, it's a good movie. I enjoyed it. Glad I watched it. And you're not really an action movie person, and you still thought it was good, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Go watch it. Tell us what you think of the coyote scene, because I don't think we've cracked it. I, I, if there's more to it than Native American mythology, <laughs> maybe so. But at any rate, yeah. Um, so that's a go for sure on uh, on Collateral. So... That brings us, I believe, to the end of our discussion about Collateral. So, now, Kari, if I recall correctly, when we started rolling this episode, you did not know what movie you were going to recommend for next week. Mm-hmm. So, well, I don't want to peel the curtain back too far, but I do want to call you out on that just a little bit. I mean, no spoilers, but I almost never know which movie I'm going to pick <laughs> until we get there. I have a list. I know where oh, it's going to come from, but... Come on. Um... 
So for next week, we are going to dive into film history on film history Ooh. with a classic that everyone should see, Singing in the Rain. All right. Okay. I did know. I just didn't want you to be able to guess it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, um, I'll choose to believe that. It's true. But this one is just one of my all-time favorites. I saw it really young, and it is, if, if you're a fan of old Hollywood and old Hollywood like musicals, it's the pinnacle it's number one so really excited i think it's it it's interesting i'm, I'm excited to see what you think of it i am this is actually a movie that i am shocked that i have never seen before yeah me too. i love movies from the 50s i love hollywood history mm-hmm. and this is literally both of those things together i don't necessarily love musicals as a whole genre but this definitely seems like i, I do love gene kelly I think he's yeah great. i how can you not um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to watch this one. I'm excited to finally have a reason to, like, have someone force me to watch it, because I just haven't gotten around to it, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm really looking forward to having this discussion with you next week. So, with that, uh, I believe that brings us to the end, so until next time, I am Kyle. I'm Kari. And we will see you next time. See ya. See ya.